Well, this morning, I want to introduce you to Skylin. That's Skylin there with her mom, Erica. I've mentioned her before at church. Um, I had the honor of officiating her parents' wedding, uh, Erica there and Blake, in this very sanctuary. Now, Skylin is a two-year-old who a few months ago was diagnosed with a pretty aggressive form of brain cancer. She spent months, uh, I mean, her mom kind of journeyed this, archived all this on Facebook. Her months, or her, for, for two months, um, she spent in the intensive care unit at a children's hospital in, in Georgia. And much of her story went viral. People all over the place, across the country, I imagine the world, were praying for her. her the local Christian radio station, I guess their equivalent of K-Love down in Georgia, was sharing her story and encouraging people to pray. And on, uh, on Wednesday, March 29th, Skyland's mom posted on Facebook that they had decided to stop treatment, that she was exhausted, she was physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, and the cancer just was not responding to the medicine. Um, but we continued to pray for a miracle, that there's nothing that is outside of the realm of possibility and power of God. And uh, right before service, Last Sunday, I saw this message on Facebook. Skylin there with her dad. They said, Skylin Ann went to be with the Lord at 2.21 a.m. this morning. Wrapped in her dad's arms. And, uh, you know, Skylin's story is, it's not unique. This, this happens all the time, as you can tell. This story is, has wrecked me a little bit. I didn't know Skyland personally. Uh, in fact, I didn't even really know her parents very well uh, before officiating their we- wedding. Erica grew up in the Swissville area. Uh, she's from the neighborhood and wanted to get married here and, you know, saw the, the church in the neighborhood and asked if I'd officiate. And because of that, I'm, you know, Facebook friends with Erica and Blake and followed their family's growth down in Georgia. So I, I didn't know Skyland personally, but there felt like there was a, a connection, a personal connection there. And I had been crying out for those months for God to heal her. But then she dies. What do we make of that? How do we make sense of God's goodness that we proclaim when we have experiences like this? And I know for many people, these types of experiences can produce crippling doubt in us. It's natural for us to ask questions like, how could God let this happen? Right, myself, thousands of people were petitioning to God that he would spare her this trial, that he would heal her so that she could have a full life. But it's easy to feel like our prayers were ignored. God, where were you? Don't you care? Maybe to cope, we resort to simple catchphrases like, all things work for good. Acknowledging that while, yes, this is a tragedy, God is at work through something bigger and better in the suffering. And I don't deny that is what the Bible teaches. But, man, it, it, in the moment that feels a little tone deaf and, frankly, an over-spiritualization of what we're dealing with, right, in the here and now. I think entering into that grief and really grappling with suffering. We use mottos like all things work for good to assuage our consciences so we can cope, so we can move on. But these last few months as Skylin was suffering in that hospital unit, 
I was asking myself the same questions. God, what are you doing? Why does this two-year-old girl need to suffer? Why won't you do something about it? What do we do when it seems like evil and brokenness have the upper hand in life? Where is God when those things happen? Now, I'm guessing that none of you knew Skyland personally, but you can probably, probably don't have to think too long before you can consider an area of suffering yourself where you've asked the same question, like, God, where are you? Now, we're not the only ones asking these questions. A number of philosophers have uh, say that the presence of evil invalidates Right? The presence of suffering invalidates what we say we believe in God, what we proclaimed even this morning. Philosophers make these four assertions, or presuppositions, I guess. They're less assertions. If we say that God exists, we say that God is all-powerful. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God is good. Then number four, in our current experience, we recognize that evil exists. Skeptic philosophers argue that all four of those things cannot exist at the same time, that they are mutually exclusive from one another. That our experience with evil indicates that at least one of or more of those numbers, one through three, are incorrect. Maybe God exists, but perhaps he's not good, and that's why he has an unended suffering. Maybe there is a good God, but he's not powerful enough to end suffering. Or maybe the presence of suffering means that God doesn't exist at all. That's what these philosophers suggest. The logical argument is that if an all-powerful God, who is the embodiment of good exists, then evil should not exist. Now I have to say this reasoning doesn't take into, I think it's a little short-sighted, it doesn't take into all kinds of nuance. But I think this is an important starting place for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Even if we disagree with the conclusions that these skeptics have come to, it gives voice to the cry of our heart that we have in these experiences. God, you say in your word that you are a God of healing. You express desire to see that healing happen. You state that it's within your power, so why is this young girl dying of cancer? Fill in the blank, whatever it might be that's relevant to you. It can cause Similar to those four presuppositions, it can cause a crisis of faith where we start to doubt one or more of those facets of of who God is. Now this morning is Easter Sunday and many coming, many arrive uh, expecting an upbeat sermon, one where we celebrate the empty tomb, that we celebrate Jesus' triumph over death, and we will get there. But I think to go right to celebrating the resurrection disconnected from our suffering can feel kind of like going like, rah, rah, Jesus. You know, like we're in a pep rally for Jesus. I I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in fleeting celebrations that just make us feel good on one particular Sunday. I want to dive down deep into the depths of grief because if we can find hope and meaning in, in the seemingly senseless death of a toddler, then perhaps maybe we are equipped to go to the valley of the shadow of death and know that eventually we will come out on the other side. The empty tomb by itself is meaningless. You've got all kinds of mausoleums right now that are not yet filled. I was driving through uh, uh, Munhall the other day, and they're advertising, brand new mausoleum. It's empty. What made the 
this empty tomb special that we refer to this morning is that there had previously been a deceased body inside. So in order, I think, to appreciate the resurrection of Jesus, we need to start with his crucifixion. If you want to open Bibles, I got one short passage that I want us to look at. You don't have to, but if you want to follow along, we're going to be looking at Luke 22. We've got Bibles in the pews there, or if you want to pull out your, uh, your phones, you can use that too. And I just, I want to look at the moments just before Jesus was betrayed, just before he was about to be killed horrifically. So this is Luke 22. This is the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes to this secluded garden to spend some time in prayer with his father. So this is Luke 22. I'm going to read 39 to 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And they appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose in prayer, rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now from this passage, we see that Jesus was dealing with a great crisis. He was anxious. He was fearful. As they say nowadays, he was shook. He knew what was coming. He knew that he was going to be betrayed tried in an unjust court, be killed in one of the most torturous ways ever imagined. The next 24 hours for Jesus was going to be very intense. Verse 44 tells us that he was in agony so much that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, this is a legitimate medical condition. What I'm going to read next comes right from the website of the National Institute of Health. Bloody sweating is called hematohydrosis. Probably said that wrong. But it may occur in individuals suffering from extreme levels of stress. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form which constrict under the pressure of great stress. You see a theme here. Then, as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture and go into the sweat glands. As the sweat glands produce a lot of sweat, they push blood to the surface, which comes out of droplets of blood mixed with sweat. This medical diagnosis shows the level of agony, suffering, anxiety that Jesus is going through even before the events of the cross. Now, when I think about suffering in my life, this is the first hope that I receive. Jesus is well acquainted with our suffering. This is why the humanity of Jesus is so important. Not only does he serve as our representative, but he is our model as well. Jesus entered into this hot mess that is humanity through the incarnation, intensifying with the crucifixion. God himself entered. Think about that for a minute. God himself entered into our world of suffering. 
Jesus knew what it was to be hungry, to be betrayed, to have a friend die too soon, to be rejected, to be mocked, to be anxious, right? Jesus experienced all of those things. He knows what we grapple with. We are not alone in our grief. What the cross shows is that God did not stay aloof or distant from our suffering, but he faced it head on. Jesus could have stayed in his lofty place of heaven. He could have remained immune from pain and death, but instead, he enters our reality. He suffered alongside of us. God, in the flesh, suffered. Elie Weissel was a Jewish teenager in Romania when he was taken captive by the Nazis in 1944. And he shares his story of being in the concentration camps in a book titled Night. And during one of the particularly cruel moments by the Nazi soldiers, two men and a boy from the concentration camp are publicly hung. And the two men die quickly, but the spectators are forced to watch for nearly half an hour as the young boy struggles between life and death. As Ellie is watching this, he hears some men behind him grumbling about the injustice saying, where is God now? And Weissel said within himself, he heard a voice answer, where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on these gallows. Now I think what Weissel hears is in alignment with what we see the testimony in the Gospels. That Jesus, our representative, experienced suffering, was well acquainted with grief and sorrow. That's the hope that I receive, is that in my suffering, I am not alone. That Jesus did not consider his place of privilege and protection so strong that he was unwilling to humble himself and enter into this world. Notice also the pleading of Jesus in our passage in Luke. He's practically begging the Father that if there is any way to keep this cup of suffering from him, let's go with that plan instead. But the answer is reinforced. Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knows he's still going to die. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is entreating his father with such anxiety that he is literally sweating blood. And the father's response to Jesus is to say no. I mean, those of you who are parents, imagine if this is one of your children begging to be spared this brutality. How much would your heart break for them? Hey, even if you're not a parent, imagine this is one of the, one of the pets whom you love or a close friend. Right? If they were crying out in anguish, pleading you, pleading for you to take something away that was in your power, how could you let it continue? But God's not heartless. Right? Earlier in the Gospels, we see God part the heavens to share his delight, his joy with his son. But Isaiah 53.10 reminds us that it was the Father's will to crush the Son. It says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. The Father loves the Son. What would bring him to crush the Son, even as his Son pleads that there would be some other way? I think this should show us the weight of what was accomplished on the cross. So it's not some arbitrary death. Something so significant was going on. 
If it had been something arbitrary and simple, I believe God would have changed plans in a heartbeat. I said, all right, let's go with plan B or plan C. But something so momentous and potent happened as the result of Jesus' suffering that Jesus as a sacrifice for us dealt with sin, evil, death as he hung up there. This was the plan. There was no other way. Now, if you've spent any time at church, you've probably heard the expression that Jesus died for your sin. Now, in light of this brutality, I've had people ask me, like, why? Why did this have to be the way? Couldn't God just have decided to forgive anyone? Why did Jesus have to die? But I think such a question reveals a small view of sin in our worldview. Right? One could argue that God could have just granted a pardon for every human being that lived, much like you know, our president does every year, not for every human being that lives, but the president signs a pardon and that person, whoever's in jail, or, you know, has, is, is released. They're free, declared not guilty. What's the big deal if God just chooses to ignore sin? But if we are asking that question, I think it shows a reflection that we're, we're operating out of a place of privilege. What if you were one of the prisoners who were forced to watch the hanging of a young boy in the concentration camp? Should those soldiers just get a pass? What if you were repeatedly abused by a family member, scarring you for life? Should God just pretend like that never happened? What if you were trafficked into slavery, working at a factory to cheaply make NFL merchandise for Western society? Got no health care, separated from your family. Should your oppressors just be pardoned? Pretend like it never happened. The cross is, and those were all hypothetical that I think the assumed answer is no. Right? We, we are a people of justice when terrible things happen. We think those things should be meted out, that there should be judgment. Well, why, why is my sin any less? Arguably, we might rank it as less, but I, I still have left destruction in my own wake, suffering in my own wake as well. The cross is crucial because it is through this act of Jesus' suffering that he is both just and the justifier. God grants forgiveness, which we are, forgiven, we are given by grace, grace meaning that it was free. We are pardoned, we are declared not guilty, and we don't have to lift a finger to, to do it. It's free for us. But there was great cost to Jesus as he suffered on our behalf. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how we have hurt others. When we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, our slate is wiped clean, but God is able to point to that cross and say that judgment, punishment was executed. The cross gives us hope into Jesus dealing with suffering, taking it upon himself so that it would not be the last word. The cross does not answer the question of why God allows suffering but it gives explicit detail of a God who did not insulate himself from our woes, but is willing to suffer right alongside of us. But here we get to the best news of the story on Easter Sunday, that the cross is not the last word. On that Good Friday some 2,000 years ago, Jesus endured the worst that humanity and its rebellion could offer. He persevered that torture as the enemy thought it had overcome the Son of God in the flesh, and his body laid in a tomb. On the third day after these events, some women went to Jesus' tomb 
with some spices to, you know, freshen up his course. You see, Jesus' death was on the Friday, right before one of their holy days, so they kind of rushed him to a tomb, rolled a stone over the mouth of the cave so they could worship God in their holiday. Uh, But now on Sunday, they returned to the tomb to finish the preparations for a, a proper burial. But when the women get there, something is amiss. The enormous stone that was meant to cover the entrance of the tomb is pushed off to the side. The Roman soldiers who were left to guard the tomb in case some of Jesus' followers tried to, you know, play a prank, steal the body, those soldiers had run in fear. As the women are taking in these scenes, two dazzling, two men in dazzling white robes approached them and said that Jesus, whom they were looking for, was not dead but was alive? They must have been entirely stunned. One of the women, Mary Magdalene, wanders off, finds who she thought was the gardener, She cries out to him, what have they done with Jesus? She says, if you have taken his body, please just let me know where you've put it so I can give him a proper burial. But then the gardener speaks, Mary. And her ears prick up at the the voice, the, the pitch, the tone. She knows that voice. How could she not have seen it before? That this was her master. This was Jesus alive in the flesh. And thus began the events that changed the course of human history. Jesus Christ, having dealt with the punishment for sin on the cross, and death was alive once more. The miracle of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is one of the most attested miracles in all of antiquity. The Bible tells us that Jesus then appears to hundreds of people who saw him alive in the flesh hundreds of eyewitnesses, some who ate with him, some who touched the scars on his body. This wasn't some mass hallucination or wishful thinking. The evidence was objective, was concrete, right? If you were, you know, if you lived in that day and age and you heard this incredulous story, you could go down the street, you know, talk to Marv the butcher to confirm what he saw. What the resurrection tells us is that suffering and death, while they might be here in life, do not have the last word. It gives us hope that our present experience is not the end of the road. Paul tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruit of, quote, those who have fallen asleep, a euphemism, an idiom for death. In essence, Paul is saying, because Jesus rose from the dead, we also can have confidence that we will share the same fate to him. That when our fragile, that when our frail bodies break down and die, we will experience the newness of life. Paul, speaking of resurrection, says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is hope. We have hope that the outlook for tomorrow is brighter than what we feel like today. Because one day we too will share in the resurrection of Jesus. Now once again, the resurrection does not answer the why question that I posed. I don't know that anything answers the why question. If you read the book of Job, it is suffering upon suffering. And there's a lot of asking why, but we don't get an answer but perhaps that's not the right question to ask. Right? The resurrection doesn't explain why children die of cancer or why suffering 
occurs, but the resurrection does give us hope so that we can persevere on this journey of life. It reminds us that while darkness and mourning may last through the night, that joy comes in the morning, as the psalmist declares. Several years ago, I had the vice provost of the University of Pittsburgh speak to the students that I was working with at Pitt. Her name's Kathy Humphrey. She's moved up ranks farther since then. But during the message, she was sharing about an aunt of hers who was sick, similar to the experience that I shared at the beginning. She and other family members had prayed and prayed for her aunt to be healed of her illness so that she could you know, recover and continue with her life. But in the end, her aunt died. And I'll never forget what she said next. She said, God answered those prayers. Maybe not the way that people praying them had in mind, but she said, who is healed now? Her aunt was no longer suffering, had been entirely healed of her sickness, and that story has stuck with me. It helps sometimes for me to to, to provide meaning and direction in times of trial, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that one day we too will rise from the grave, free from sin, but also free from sickness and death itself. So bringing this full circle, this is the hope of Easter for those who love Skyland. This is what her parents, Erica and Blake, have been professing and proclaiming in this time. They're feeling grief right now, but they acknowledge, just like Dr. Humphrey said, who, who's healed now? Skyland is not suffering anymore under the tyranny of cancer. We grieve because she is no longer with us, but she has a freedom from pain and suffering. She's experienced a newness of life that is even beyond our understanding of life here on the side of paradise. And so this morning, on a day that we remember and we celebrate Jesus' triumph over death, his triumph over the grave, it's on this day that we remind ourselves that the resurrection of Jesus was not just a fact from history. It's not just something to be memorized and remembered and you know, regurgitated on a test. But it was an event that pays dividends well into the future, into our lives. That when we encounter trials, when we encounter suffering and anguish, we can be reminded of a Savior who also suffered, who also overcame death, so that not even the grave has a hold upon us any longer. We are truly a resurrection people, and I just want to say thanks be to God for that. So as we think about this, as we think about suffering, the goodness of God in the place of suffering, bringing reconciliation in those tensions, here's some questions, and I'll put them on Facebook and the website like I do. But I think it's important that we don't just spiritualize or sugarcoat our suffering. But ask ask questions about it. So what events or experiences that you have cause you to struggle with doubt in God's goodness? It's okay to feel that way. God's big enough to handle our doubt. He's big enough for us to ask those questions. And then how do you assuage those doubts? Do you just kind of stuff them and move on? Or do you try to work through and process what God might be doing? How is God working? 
Second is, what meaning does it provide for you that Jesus did not insulate himself from suffering but entered our world to face it head on? I know many of us uh, are, well, I shouldn't speak for everyone else. I know myself. It's easy for me, if I'm in a place of protection or insulation, to, to remain in that. It is inhospitable to want to go out of that safety into certain places of the world. Um, but that's precisely what Jesus did. He didn't have to suffer the way that he did. We were not owed anything that he did. So contemplating that this week. And then lastly, how can you carry the hope from the empty tomb with you this week and apply it to your circumstances? Jesus is described as the first fruits. He is kind of the, the archetype, the, the template that our future experience is based upon. And so what hope does that give you? You know, if you want to read 1 Corinthians 15, is a beautiful passage that Paul writes talking about all of this, the importance of the resurrection. You know, he says, he says that if uh, Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're to be pitied above all mankind, all of humanity, because we're still in our sins. You know, that, that's so much hinges on this. So, you know, think about the, the faith of uh, the empty tomb and how it might be providing hope for you this week. Let me uh, close us in prayer. God, I want to come before you uh, with this heart of honesty. Being honest with the things that I feel. And I'm sure there are times that I feel things that are not in accordance with your truth. When I doubt your goodness, I doubt that you are working on my behalf, that perhaps I feel abandoned. Lord, in the midst of those times, may we look evermore at the Gospels of your son Jesus who entered into human history, experienced the full range of emotion and is not distant from me but can be empathetic towards how I'm feeling. Lord, may I be able to take an understanding of this resurrection that you would put in all of us, this, this uh, well that would overflow of, the good, of your goodness, of the victory that comes from the resurrection, that the last enemy to be defeated is death, that, Jesus, you have the keys of the kingdom. Lord, may we carry this with us and be a people that is different, knowing that the rest of the world might not know what happens next, but we do. We have hope. Keep us from spiraling into nihilism of a life devoid of meaning. But Lord, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we are in these places of suffering and anguish, may we know that you are with us. May we know where you have gone and come out on the other side. And may it give us hope and life to live this life to the full. Lord, be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.